Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. Today, we're staying on the provider side with a focus on risk-bearing primary care in the Medicare Advantage space. Our guest today is Dr. Ali Khan, the Chief Medical Officer of Value-Based Care Strategy at Oak Street Health, where he leads efforts in managing in managed care strategy, clinical design, and public policy. Ali joined Oak Street Health back in 2019 as the Executive Medical Director of the Heartland Division and continues to practice general internal medicine. Prior to Oak Street, he served as the Clinical Design Officer at Caremore Health. He also serves on the clinical faculty of the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine and is a director on the Internal Medicine Specialty Board. Ali was recognized as one of modern healthcare's top 25 emerging leaders in 2021 and was featured in Crane's Chicago business as a notable executive of color in healthcare in 2022. Dr. Khan completed his residency at Yale New Haven Hospital. He's a graduate of the Harvard Kennedy School and VCU's Medical College of Virginia, earning joint MD and MPP degrees as a Harvard Public Service Fellow. Another underachiever, huh? Okay. Well, I had the opportunity to listen to Ali at our June meeting of the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee, PTAC, where he was an invited subject matter expert and educated the committee on what is happening at Oak Street and their risk-based primary care model. Welcome to the show, Ali. Thanks so much for having me, Larry. How did you get to where you are today? That's what we really want to know. You, you'll hear a lot of presentations where people talk a lot about serendipity, right? Just like, oh, it's dumb luck that I end up being here. What they don't tell you, right, is that like the dumb luck is actually <laughs> the byproduct of like years of very careful <laughs> preparation, positioning, and, and power building that then enables someone to sort of take that jump when that opportunity presents themselves. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., inside the Beltway in a very like socially engaged household. My mom is an elementary school principal. My father was in uh, you know government contracting, nightly news on every night while we're eating dinner at the dinner table, those sorts of things. I grew up wanting to be like the next great American investigative reporter, right? As you're Listeners may or may not be able to tell <laughs> I am you know, a South Asian Muslim male. So my parents are really eager for me to fulfill my genetic destiny and, you know, you obviously become a cardiologist. <laughs> those, those two tensions, I think, came, you know, not in conflict, but I think I had like at an early age where I was, I was getting exposed to medicine, getting exposed to medical careers, had, had folks in the family who were in medicine and think about like, hey, this is cool. Like, I like being at the bedside. I enjoy the work of caring for patients, like the the, va the value of those relationships is incredibly real. And like, that's why medical dramas are always the rage. While shows about lawyers are fun, there's a mystery about what we do mm -hmm. that's, always, that's always compelling. But, you know, so I ended up going to undergrad in one of these combined undergraduate medical school programs that are eight years in length at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. And that program was great because obviously, ostensibly, it was supposed to turn you into a doctor. But functionally, through all the different kind of requirements we had, we basically needed to major in a non-science, right? And they had a great school of communication, so I got to major in print journals. I got to spend three years reporting and or lobbying in and around the Virginia General Assembly and really soaking in kind of what could happen from a public policy perspective. I got to see a lot of the challenges of living in an urban core. Looking at these, like the, the breadth 
of social problems, particularly I'll say just like as an American Muslim kid whose first week of college was September 11th, 2001, right? Oh my God. Yeah, and in oh a world, I think in a time then when a lot of the world and a lot of my peers were really kind of looking outward, trying to figure out what can we do from a global health perspective? How do we think about issues of national security and international security? And because I was a Muslim kid named Ali Muhammad Khan, my parents yeah. were like, you're not going anywhere. For all those small reasons, it focused my attention really on like, what are the challenges within like domestic society? And so I really then spent a great deal of time trying to figure out, like I loved reporting, but like reporting stories alone was not satisfactory, right? I wanted to go solve them. And so I tried to figure mm. out, you know, is, is medicine the right path to solve them? Is it law? Is it? I ended up sort of going on a little bit of a walkabout and spent the better part of a year in Boston eating cheese sandwiches every day because that's all I could afford while working at uh, like two places, a human rights NGO called Visions of Human Rights that, you know, was trying to leverage the science and rigor of medical and scientific intervention to influence issues around not only civil and political human rights, but social, economic, and cultural rights. And then separately, working down Masters Avenue at Boston Medical Center in what was the first version of the Medical Legal Collaborative for Children, where lawyers, social workers, and legal aid were all embedded inside of this department of pediatrics. So when kids are coming in, getting recurrent asthma because they live in Section 8 housing and no one's dealt with the mold, we would say, hey, we can file a court case for you. <laughs> or, hey, we got it. We, could, we can help make sure that your power stays on. Or you still have gas heating during the winter, right? Those are like the, the basic things that we didn't have words for those then, but like that, you know, really drivers of social risk. And seeing the unique place where like multidisciplinary teams can come together to make a real impact. But that even in that work, the distinctive impact and power of the voice of the physician the work that we do, and the criticalness of always remaining at the bedside in and around that work to add perspective, humility, good clinical rigor, and power to the work that we try to do in terms of creating larger change. It was just really profound. Recharged, I kind of end up going back to medical school, joining my classmates, spent a number of years kind of trying to figure out how do you do this? Spent a lot of time in organized medicine, doing a bunch of stuff at the federal and uh, state level in like kind of health policy and advocacy, got to learn a bunch of incredible things from a, a real diverse cohort of peers all across the country. And then 2008 was trying to figure out, do I want to be a trauma surgeon, an ER doc, or a general internist? And um, That's quite the spread there, my friend. Yeah, it was quite the spread. And so the best way to do that is to go uh, take a break for a year and a half and go get a policy degree. So I went, you know, headed to the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, which in 2008 in particular was just like this after you know years of just focusing on the basic sciences and clinical sciences, it was kind of like entering this intellectual opium den of just like incredible people from all sorts of different walks of life who were all coming from varied backgrounds, but really had a centered interest on like thinking about how do you advance the public good and what are all the different tools to get there. I think it was the first start of realizing like I really like to build, end up taking a bunch of you know management leadership courses, financial control, accounting, these sorts of things to try to put it all together. Right. To say, like, I don't know where my career is going to go, but this feels like the right toolkit and learning from incredible you know, physician and healthcare leaders who had gone down this route. Right. Getting doing major leadership in the nonprofit academic or you know, health system sectors or e even more diverse than that. And sort of seeing like what happens there and realizing, though, that like I woke up one day and was like, yeah, I really miss rounding. <laughs> and was like, I guess I'm going to be an internist. Uh, but then more critically, I also met my wife there. 
um, at, uh, at, who, who was doing a master in public health and global health and population on her out year uh, from the University of Chicago's uh, School of Medicine. Knowing that, like, I kind of wanted to go build a career in domestic health policy and management and, and, and general medicine, to residency, figure the only path there was like health services research and like you do a chief year and, you know, you do the things and like sort of figure it out in academia. And again, I think at the dawn of sort of like Affordable Care Act implementation after that passage, I again realized like, you know, I want to get my hands dirty in the work. I don't want to write about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I want to do it. And that led me on like a really interesting search that is a a totally different podcast. (laughs) But like I ended up spending three months of my third year of residency in Las Vegas on the really? taking care of super sick casino workers in a fully capitated model uh, and Iora Health with Rashika Fernando Pule, who is you know remains an incredible mentor and guide, and Andrew Chutzbank, who is uh, uh, a force of nature in his own right, and both general internists who were building Iora's first clinic in a community health worker driven model, full you know full risk full capitation, highly proactive primary care for this highly <laughs> structurally marginalized but well insured population and it was the highest functioning healthcare team i'd ever seen in my life larry mm-hmm. with that you know i i said no to that chief fear i pulled out of that fellowship process and i said i think this is a place where i'll go where i'll learn the most and i don't know where to lead and i certainly never imagined working for a venture-backed company but like they're doing the work i want to go do and they're doing it without banging their heads against a wall and that's kind of what i've been following ever since you know, Ali, that is an incredible story. It's clear to me, you know, everybody's position in, in life is the sum total of all the decisions they've made prior to that. But yours was a very introspective growth pattern in your career. I, I'm, I'm really, really impressed with how you came to where you are. You're the chief medical officer for value-based care at Oak Street. Yes, sir. Let's talk about this, okay? So... Explain to the listeners what Oak Street is and what are your challenges there? What are you trying to solve today? First, there's the trick of like building the right company, right? And like my thesis on this is that there's the axes that you want are sort of the first of incredible, ideally like cultural rigor and infrastructure. Iora was a great example of that. The second being phenomenal clinical and sort of in care management rigor. Right, particularly in the context of how we can leverage the full breadth and depth of clinical interventions to be highly creative and engaging for how we keep people out of trouble and how things like delegated functions or planned functions like utilization management and network and claims and stuff like that can actually all come together virtuously as opposed to the way they usually do, which is terribly. Um, and like sort of what that looks like at the frontier. And Care War was probably the foremost example that I've seen and will ever see. Then I think like operational rigor how do you make the trains run on time how do you do things consistently mm-hmm. what's the, that, that chassis for just like crossing t's and dotting the i's every single day which is one mm-hmm. place where i think oak street does incredibly well and then the fourth is you know community engagement and growth and partnerships how do you build yourself into the ecosystem of the community that you actually serve that you're figuring out how to do that within a neighborhood within a specific area but also in the context of community-based partnerships community-based organizations other health systems the people that we need to we need to engage to make a seamless experience for people. That work and getting getting those four axes right is probably like in different ways what I've done across my entire career. At Oak Street, right, like I spend a lot of time, particularly in like the clinical and care management and then like community-based partnership work and how that feeds from a cultural standpoint. But the challenge right now is sort of like taking 
the promise of value-based care, which I think, you know, 10, 12 years in, 15 years in, we see a lot of spread of opportunity, right? In that, particularly in Medicare Advantage there's and, and Managed Medicaid combined, the leading organizations are probably taking care of about seven to eight million lives altogether, nothing to sneeze at. We see a lot of promising signals around what that means from a patient experience standpoint, what that means from a clinical outcomes perspective, what that looks like in terms of the impact on the overall total cost of care trend, how we're doing in, in terms of keeping people out of trouble, making them more activated, keeping them healthy. We have work to do on that in terms of making the promise, the full promise real, right? Like Oaks Street for us, we're in the primary care space. I, I tell a lot of physicians that I work with and folks that are thinking about joining Oak Street, our first seven or eight years were really like, let's demonstrate it operationally by building the right interprofessional teams, by getting the trains running on time, by getting the right team structure, by organizing a day well, by building the technology and tools to the, and processes enable all this to function. We were able to make primary care not suck, <laughs> right? Like, mm-hmm. how do you make this a, a job that isn't contributing to massive burnout? How do you make this a job mm-hmm. that is a, a career that's manageable? How do you shift the work from, re- from reactive primary care of whatever's coming in through the door to proactive primary care? How do we think about people even when they're not in front of us and use the resources, experiences, and perspectives of a large team to get the follow-through so that people don't fall through the cracks, right? Well, that requires a smaller panel size, right? That requires more different resources. That requires ways to stay in touch with people that are conscious of the fact that some there are some months where at times of the month where they might run out of cell phone minutes, right? Or where they may not have Wi-Fi access. And so what do we do with shoe leather and, and, and walking streets to make sure we can find people? I think the challenge before us now for all of us is the second phase of how do we make this experience in primary care incredibly sustainable and full of meaning and belonging and impact for our patients and for our care teams alike, right? Especially our, our physicians and other clinicians. That's the work of then stitching together those relationships, right? So that like, I can do a lot today, for example, in being a robust generalist, I'm supported by data science teams, I'm supported by clinical decision support. I know I get nudges, you know, around making sure I'm prescribing the right kind of guideline directed medical therapy on heart failure or getting the right kind of assessments done on a regular basis from a COPD standpoint to make sure that we're monitoring lung function. And if I need help, I've got an e-consult that's, you know, three or four hours away. But at some point I do need to get someone in who have been working up for, you know, stage three chronic kidney disease mm-hmm. to talk to a doc. A lot of times, you know, I practice in East Garfield Park on the west side of Chicago, even with that proximity, right, which is like literally across the street on some level, right. or at least across the highway, our life expectancy is 18 years below that of downtown yep. Chicago in the loop. And part of that is because my patients, even my patients on traditional Medicare, where it's not an insurance issue, it's not a prior auth issue, I'm sending over a really thoughtful consult showing, hey, I did all these things, I got a renal ultrasound, I got all these labs, so on and so forth. I really want you to have a conversation with this person who has a family history of people dying on dialysis to think about peritoneal dialysis, if that's possible mm-hmm. for them, or talk to them about transplant. Yes, we're a full risk managed care company. And, and when transplant's the right thing for our patients, we should absolutely make that investment, right? Because it's the right. right thing to do to keep them out of trouble. Even when I'm trying all that proactivity, it's still taking nine, 10, 11 weeks to go get that authorized, to get that scheduled, for the scheduling to happen. And when the patient gets there, and now I can't help them with getting to and from that appointment to specialists, right? Because that could be a, a compliance risk, well-intended as it is. And when they get to that appointment, they're struggling to get a lot of information. The nephrologist that are seeing hasn't seen any of the stuff that I sent over, because we sent that over 11 weeks ago, and just says, huh, sounds like you need dialysis. We should plan for HD. And yeah. then they come back to me, and I'm like, what, what just happened? 
right? yeah. like, not, not what like, you not what you the outcome not the outcome you wanted yeah and yeah. like and that brings mm-hmm. as people to question why like what's the proactivity for if we're if we're going to get stuck in this kind of trap yeah so like the work that we then do how do we build the connectivity with that renal group so that yeah. when we know they're a high quality renal group we can build our own communication systems it isn't just like what we're faxing over how they normally do things but that we can communicate in real time where they're getting then a bunch of our patients because we know that these specialists are high qualities. They're, they're deepening their understanding of the Oak Street model. They know, oh, I know Oak Street probably did these things. I know where to look for it, so on and so forth. And then they're able to engage meaningfully and with some rapid res- service time. We can do real things in the context of addressing some of the unnecessary delays in chronic disease management that lead to poor outcomes. And so when we do that, not only is that better for the patient, it's also better for the, both the specialist and the primary care physician. It starts to eat away at some of the scar tissue that's built up of just the frustrations of practicing in a highly fragmented medical industrial complex that we work with. And so I think for us, that's the work of making as many things as we can in robust generalist care, primary care delivery that aggressively tries to take on all the pieces of biopsychosocial risk means that how do we make that easy for people? How do we make that sustainable for people for the entire care team? How do we keep the patient engaged in that way and find the right common sense solutions to make sure they're not worrying alone? That to me is the challenge before us in value-based care, before us in healthcare, and for us in a health from a health equity and social equity perspective, right? All those things are interwoven and they all have real dependencies. I can send somebody over to get Paxlovid, but like in East Garfield Park, there wasn't a pharmacy around that was willing to carry it. Yeah. So at Oak Street, yeah. we said, all right, we'll work with the city and we'll just distribute Paxlovid ourselves. Yeah. Like that, that's fantastic. And I love that we do that. And it, that, those kinds of small wins bring incredible joy to our teams. But Ali, you're, Ali, you, are, you are a master of the blocking and tackling. Right. That's all. You, is, know, right? you, are, yeah. you have mastered this. I have to break just for a second here. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. Ali Khan, Chief Medical Officer of Value-Based Care Strategy at Oak Street Health. Ali, I, I want to focus on something you're talking about here, your challenges in managing patients with chronic illnesses. And it does require interaction with specialists. And from a structural point of view, Building your specialist relationships, I would imagine you would you would love to have a large percentage of a specialist's patient care base coming from Oak Street so that you would get more of a response from the specialist that would be predictable from your point of view. But that's not reality today. You probably are sending patients to specialists, and what they're getting from Oak Street is a very small percentage of their total uh, patient exposure. So how do you build those relationships with select specialists so that your patients are getting the outcome that you want? When I was in Vegas at Iora, we used to just keep a good folks list. Vegas is a city with one of the highest rates of cardiac catheterizations in the country. You can get stented for anything. Bernie Sanders got stented there. He was stented uh, and intervened upon uh, by one of the interventional cardiologists that we know very well at, from the Iora days, who was on our good folks list. First off, when you interact with him, you could tell this was a physician who actually who really cared, who was not just pushing people through to see him, who was not just trying to knock out a bunch of procedural volume all day, but like truly took the time to say, come in and listen to patients. And so back in those days, we'd bring Dr. Marchand in and he'd just say, hey, just come set up in our office one day a week. Like, we'll just localize it there, figure it out. 
the basic thesis of like, this is a good guy. And this is somebody who understands what we're trying to do here, gets the community that we're serving, is motivated to engage with the patients that we want to serve, right? Not everybody wants to serve patients who are insured by Medicare or Medicaid. I think one of the first things I learned is like, work with the people that are excited by what you're doing. What we what we do at a very fundamental moral value level, right, is, is actually a really appealing to certain folks. So when you've got a group that you want to work with, find the good people. Then you got the ability to take that sort of clinical gestalt, like, oh, this person manages somebody well, I, I agree with what they do, right? They didn't just like deploy six stents for the fun of it. Then you've got impressive data analytics that have developed over time through companies like Care Journey or Garner or Clarify that can tell you, hey, are these people practicing from a like from an evidence-based perspective in a high value manner? Right? Do they avoid low value practices? You know, what what are their rates of certain complications? And you know, we can always quibble about is it fair to like assign the the complication of a heart attack to a cardiologist when we saw somebody once, right, before it happened. But the trick is that what it enables is that you can layer qualitative and quantitative assessment of a clinician sort of practice patterns to develop a system of thinking about who's the gold standard for us? Who do we want to just go with? And then we try that. Right. We try, we try to go build that relationship and we hope that like those specialists are willing. A lot of times when we have that conversation, the group will be like, Great. Cause obviously at the end of the day, we're saying we can send a bunch of patients to you. If you're willing to like communicate with us frequently, get our patients in at a reasonable rate and a reasonable like cycle time, ideally two days for urgents and a week for for everybody else. And if you're willing to kind of work with how we practice, right? Because we will often have started a workup before they get to you. We want to bring you higher quality consults than what you may be getting now. And people are like, hey, that's great, right? We, of course we want your volume. We're going to engage all 30 of our cardiologists. You know, it would actually be better for us yeah. <laughs> if we could build a relationship with like a few of you guys. Right, uh, or right. Girls, and deepen that and see what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And we should monitor that, right? And like, may, as long as we make sure you guys are getting the right volume, stuff like that, what does that look like? That can, And that could lead to a longer, deeper financial relationship over time. I've also seen the dying art of like the community referral and how so much of that community referral work, it really was the old physician's dining room, right? Like it was building relationships. I remember when rules were passed in the 90s at a hospital where it was no longer necessary for a doctor to personally call another doctor to call in a consult. It became this perfunctory process. Communication was destroyed in the process and that special relationship between the PCP and the SCP, both ways, back and forth with communication, has suffered over the years in our quest to be efficient. It's reflective of the broader social degradation of our society and like the industrialization mm-hmm. of our medical industrial complex and all these things. For me, to again, like get the sense like who's good, who's not, who do I want to work with? Mm-hmm. But also like who can I have a conversation with, right? Like mm-hmm. who's interested in like, oh, like this is a guy, this is somebody who like actually has a real question for me. And isn't just like being like, I called cardiology because they, they have a, they have a pacer. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, like here's, here's what it is, right? So much of what we do at Oak Street, using time, resources, and big teams, time in terms of how much more time we give to patients, seeing them on average eight to nine times a year for 40 to 60 minutes appointments each time, right? Average American primary care is like, you know, <laughs> 17 minutes per visit, 1.4 times a year to get to follow through. But the, but the purpose is, is building trust. And like what we know about yeah. trust from the broad literature across the world is that density of interactions builds trust. And so when we think about primary care, specialty care relationships, a lot of what we are trying to do is extend that same model of building trust. 
to make it where the specialist is not grumbling, but to know I'm going to call Ali up and I'm going to be like, Ali, this is a yeah. terrible consult. And I'll be like, really? I sent you three pages of stuff, including like all this workup that we did. And I, got, I even got a kidney biopsy, <laughs> right? And yeah. then to be like, oh, you did? And I'll be like, yeah, I can send it to you right now on Doximity. And they'll be like, oh, okay. That's the sort of stuff. Yeah. You know? When you connect yeah. the dots for people, for you said we're blocking and tackling, that's exactly right. Yeah. We are a connect the dots, human capital intervention <laughs> that is trying to use technology and big data and, and plan functions all towards getting back to trust. I love your line. The density of the interaction builds trust. We're near the end of the show, but I want one more question to come out. You're trying to build these dense relationships with select specialists. I love that. I think that's exactly uh, where it has to go. But then you use the word financial. Yeah. So I just published an article in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology that it's time for us to build nested specialist solutions inside large population-based total cost of care entities. Are you pursuing anything at Cook Street? Have you thought of how you would build a nested solution, a financially nested solution for certain specialists inside your model? We will work with anyone who wants to work with us. Over time, what we hope at Oak Street we are doing is leading, whether directly, indirectly, or by reputation, to the overall realignment of the system. So what's been really interesting in the past five or six years is to see that, that growth of smart, thoughtful teams of cross-functional actors and leaders, right, for, with diff all different perspectives, much like your team, that like are coming together and being like, surely there's got to be a better way to do this. Can we be that kind of nested group for a bunch of different places? Yeah. This is, we're, yeah. we're still a startup. We're always going to have a bias towards, let's just do it ourselves. We actually see, yes, sometimes it is the right decision for us to build. And sometimes it's the right decision for us to partner deeply and meaningfully with the kinds of groups, whether in a one-off in a specific market or a specific part of a city that we serve or, or county that we serve, or whether it's a deep in terms of national relationships, where we can figure out for these kinds of conditions, let's share that responsibility for a patient financially. You right. guys, like we, you know, we receive, we control the full healthcare dollar today on that patient by and large. We'll share that with you. But to get, and then like, we have to get our care management systems right. We have to, but in more than just like we share a care plan document, but like we actually work off the same action plan. We know what the other side is doing. And then seeing how we can be creative and starting to coordinate things. When we, if we embed a nest nephrology in, in that way, then like, how do we help them so that we together have access to the same, the kind of same day vascular stuff that we need to help somebody who's who, a dialysis patient whose fistula clotted in the middle of dialysis. And if we can get that, that cleared, which is a relatively simple procedure, we can avoid having them to go to the ER and spend probably days in the hospital getting that fistula declotted and then like catching up on dialysis. These are the kinds of things that start to get creative. And then we can say, you know, how are we sharing in the full global risks that we take with on, on this patient with you? And so it's been, it's been fun to watch that evolution over the past few years. Ali, you're a master of the blocking and tackling, and you have a vision, and you are actually realizing that vision as you're going along. I love it. You, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You can learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HCNowRadio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care 
Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.